Welcome to the Personality Psychology Podcast. My name is Lisa Lidemore, and I'm the host of this episode. Today, we're going to talk about one of my favorite topics, narrative identity, and I'm joined today by three experts in the field. Welcome, Jonathan Adler. Hello. Hi, Kate McLean. Hi there. And welcome, Manisha Pasipati. Hi. So traditionally, the field of narrative identity has been a bit of a niche within the broader personality psychology field. Over the last few years, we have seen an increase in people who are interested in it, luckily. But for those listeners who are not yet as familiar with this topic and this field, can you maybe explain what it is about? A narrative identity is the integrative story that weaves together our reconstructed past, our perceived present, and our anticipated future. It's the domain of personality focused on how we make sense of our lives. And narrative identity connects to many other phenomena, both within other domains of personality, but also way beyond. So we're interested in the connections between narrative identity and dispositional traits or contextualized motivational patterns, but we're also interested in psychological well-being and lifespan development and physical health and disability, religion, politics, gender, parent-child relationships, many, many other topics. Yeah, I think in some ways narrative identity is a little bit unusual because it really stems um from different traditions that all start focusing on, on similar things. So there's roots in cognitive development and obviously in personality, um, cultural psychology, like John was mentioning. So there's, it's really kind of multidisciplinary within psychology. I think one of the things that, that is implicit in what, in what Kate and John have said, but was on my mind this morning as I was thinking about the podcast is that I think for a long time you had two sort of traditions, one out of social psychology, like looking at self and one in personality psychology, you know, thinking about aspects of the person. And I think narrative identity is kind of a really interesting place in which those two things come together because it's sort of the self telling a story of the, the development and continuity of that person. And I think that's one of the really nice features of narrative identity is that it brings together two fields that were sort of evolving relatively separately and, and never never really should have been separate in some sense. So if we're talking about narrative identity, and we're talking about this life story, what then is identity in that narrative identity? Is it the entire story or is it something in those stories that we say is identity? Yeah, well, that that goes to the heart of some some of the tensions, I think, between this way of thinking about personality and other aspects of personality research, right? Like, so there's so much emphasis in personality research on stability. So if you have an ever-evolving story, what is the stability in that story? And yeah, it's, it's a deep question. And I think I have some tentative answers in my own head, but I think that is a place where there is a lot of work to be done in that arena, empirically speaking. It's fair to say that there's relative stability once we get into adulthood relative stability in the way that we tell particular types of stories like that's sort of um, in many ways where the kind of individual differences are i think and but those stories do change over time so it's not like the turning point makes you the person you are because you have a different turning point in five years so the process of narration is the process of understanding and explaining oneself and i do think it's the individual differences the stable parts are more in how we do that but i, I agree with monisha that there's a lot of work to be done here. It's methodologically challenging to look at change and stability in narration, which we have all addressed in our work. 
various ways. Yeah. yeah, I agree also. And I do think that narrative identity is sort of fundamentally about integration, and again, in adulthood. And that integration works both as a verb and a noun, right? So integration is the process of narrating, and also integration is something you can observe in the product of what gets narrated. That idea, I think, that, that Kate has alluded to about the stability lying in the how people tell stories. I think there are some things we we do know empirically, like we know that some people are vivid, emotionally laden narrators and others are not, and that that quality is somewhat stable across different stories that the person might tell. But I think there are a lot of other dimensions of stories because they're such complex products of these processes that we haven't looked at for you know evaluating stability. I sometimes think of it as the voice. It's the voice that's that's where the the personality in it as traditionally conceived is sitting. And uh, and I don't know that we've even begun to plumb the depths of what kinds of voices exist. Very nuanced answer. Maybe not what someone who's very new to this would, would be hoping for. Probably the just one is no, this is this is what we're talking about. I think it very nicely illustrates how complex, but also that makes this field so nice. I think you, John, also already mentioned it a little bit that it's both a verb and a noun. Would you then also say narrative identity when we're talking about narrative identity, it's both a method and more like a content construct? I kind of think narrative identity makes contributions to personality psychology in all of the ways. So in content ways, in methodological ways, in sort of ethical ways, um, I'm happy to say more about any of that. But yes, all of the above. John, I want you to say more about the ethical part. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think narrative identity is one of the contemporary areas of research that most directly connects the field to its roots. Um, so going back to William James, but, you know, also folks like Gordon Allport and Henry Murray, who were truly interested in what we now talk about as sort of a personological approach, one that that's really interested in the whole person. I think methodologically, narrative identity continues to be one of the most mixed methods areas in our field, right? We use everything from, you know, single case qualitative designs to, you know, sophisticated longitudinal modeling quantitative designs. And then I also think it's an approach that really foregrounds an ethical orientation to research that we try to regard the individual as the expert on their own experience and not exclusively, but often working inductively to make sense of how people understand their lives. I find that the practice of narrative identity research involves this like a deep and rigorous encounter between the researcher and the participant in a way that sort of embraces a, a humanistic ethos, unlike many other forms of personality research. I love hearing you talk about that, John. And I do think it forces us to think about different things too. So it forces us, as you said, to think ethically and who are these people that we're studying? You know, they are real people with lives. It also, I think more than any other part of personality psychology forces us to think about the culture and context that the person is in. And that to me brings a real contribution to this field, which has been pretty individual focused, individually focused. And it forces us to realize that that's, we have to think broader. Um, we have to think about the, the world that the person is in and how they 
negotiate with that world and how that informs their identity development or the, the content of their identity in a way that you just don't get with, with self-report survey measures of relatively abstract or decontextualized, very important parts of, of who we are. I also think it forces some attention to the micro context. And this is both ethical, I think, as John is talking about, but also methodological, because whatever comes out of a life story interview isn't solely the product of the person who's generating the the life story. It's also the product of that encounter. And I think, you know, John spoke beautifully about the ethical implications of that, but there, there are also some serious methodological implications for that piece of what narrative identity work involves. I guess the participants are the ones that do the narrative identity work in a strict sense, and we observe the work. And contribute a little bit. <laughs> and contribute and occasion the work and, and provide frame for the work. Um, and all of that is a way in which we are part of the phenomena that we are looking at. And I think that's a kind of profound difference for, for me between these ways of studying personality and other ways. So I think though the scholars who've developed other methodological tools, in, including self-report questionnaires, are also show up in those. Yes. It's just much more hidden. Right. Yes. In some ways, we might point to a thing that transcends our own arena. Um, and, and sort of, yes, you're totally right, John. But I think that's one of the key issues is that for, for whatever reason, of some of the ones that we've talked about, this approach makes us think differently about how we do research and how we do research on any topic, right? But yeah, when someone comes into the lab and fills out a survey or does an experiment, there is an impact on that person of doing that. And there's an impact of the context and the questions they're being asked. One of my favorite things to do, and I adopted this from Moin Syed's work, is at the end of a study to have a question that's like, what was it like to participate in this study? And sometimes you get nothing and sometimes you get, oh, it was fine. And often you get really interesting things that people say, I never thought about this before. I'm so glad you asked me these questions or this was really hard. Or, And I bet that other kinds of studies would get similar kinds of answers that we just don't typically think we have an impact. We think it's a decontextualized neutral observation, but. And the that's case. the last item on McAdams life story interview too. Mm -hmm. You know, now that you mm -hmm. told this story, what was the experience of telling the story? Mm -hmm. like? Awesome. Wayne got it from Dan. <laughs> so I want to pick up, but I want to, um, you know, Dan, Jean Piaget <laughs> in some ways, like the sort of like, how did you get to where, where we got today? I want to pick up on something that you said, Kate, because I actually think, you know, sometimes I, I spend some time, maybe too much time, like thinking about some of the challenges to ideas in the narrative identity world. And one of the challenges comes from, you know, out of philosophy and people, Galen Strawson is one of the most, you know, sort of contrarian people in this arena who argue that not everyone has a narrative identity and that this is like a phenomenon of a particular kind of person, but not a phenomenon of people in, in a more broad sense. And I wonder what we make of a, a response where people say, I never thought about this before. I've never tried to put things together in this way before. You know, what is that? I So when I, when I think about people who respond that way, and that that's also been my experience in some of my own data, what is that telling us about this idea that we all have a narrative identity? And also it, for me, feeds back into what John was saying and what Robin Fivish has said, that every narrative identity study is also a kind of intervention in that you're often in a position of getting people to do some integrative work that they have not done in quite that way before. It's always a question of whether they aren't, they don't have conscious awareness of having done that work, but it's sort of running in the background or whether this is indeed 
the first moment at which they've articulated the story. My bias, given how easy it is for people to do this task and how your work, Monisha, among many others, shows us that storytelling is what we do, like that's the human right. adaptation. My my guess is that it's not truly a novel task for people. They just, however, it probably is a rare task to sit down and do a two and a half hour life story interview. So right. that's often how I interpret those responses of, wow, I've never done this before. And I think there's also a real difference in going back to what we talked about earlier with this idea of like, there is this thing called a narrative identity that people carry around with them and reproduce versus we're looking at the act of narration, as John said, as an integrative process. Those are two really different things. And I haven't read Strassen lately. I mean, I have before, but... Um, I, don't, I don't think that I, there's development in, in the critique. <laughs> good critique, because it's good for us to think about. And I think, I mean, if Dan were here, he would say there are some people who do not have narrative identities, and he's profiled yes. some of them. So I think it's not to say that, no, that that everyone has this, but I think for many of us, when we study this, we're thinking in a very process-oriented way about how people go about thinking about their lives as a story. And some of them, that is easier. I mean, as John said, I've never had someone who can't tell a story about themselves. And usually when they say it's hard, I find that's often about difficult stuff that they're talking about, stuff they haven't shared a lot. So it's not so much that they can't story, but it's that, oh, I don't want to talk about that trauma or that trauma was hard to recall or or put words to or explain or that that kind of thing. So I think there's some complexities to what makes things difficult. Right. And I've collected stories from people with quite active psychosis who can do this task. Jen Lodi-Smith has collected data from people with significant autism spectrum disorders who can do this task. I'm sure we've all had people with you know, varying degrees of IQ participate in our studies. So right, I agree with you, Kate, that the, the hardness is the confronting the content in a way, as opposed to the act of being asked to narrate your experience. It's really thoughtful uh, discussion about what narrative identity is. Uh, and already touching a little bit on, I think, the contribution that it makes uh, to the to the broader field of personality psychology. I also realize we're already a little bit into the the podcast. So I think it would be a good time now to actually introduce you as the guests, so that listeners also have an idea of what your own expertise and your own interests are in this narrative identity uh, field. I'm at the University of Utah in the Department of Psychology there, and have been there for for a very long time. Earlier in my career, I was really interested in the way that listeners shape the stories we tell. Um, and I remain really interested in how different listeners kind of shape our stories in ways that that may be consequential for identity. So some of my most recent work is looking at there's a there's a sort of shift in early adolescence from talking primarily with parents to telling stories much more with friends. And so we started to look at the different sorts of narrative contexts that mothers and friends create. Um, and Kate has also done done some work in this regard. And that uh, what we've been able to document so far is basically that mothers create the kind of therapeutic narrative context. They help people explore and think about experiences and manage their emotions. And friends create a kind of occasion for telling stories as entertainment. And that's probably not surprising to anyone who thinks about it for a few minutes. <laughs> but what 
I think is not so well understood and what what would be the the next driving question I think from from this work is what does that mean for identity um, when people are sort of telling the same event to these very different listeners and the implications for the kind of identity they're building seem like they might be very different it's very different to kind of talk about hurting a friend's feelings with an eye to sort of how to make amends and how to think about your obligations to one another versus you know telling that same story in a way that makes fun of that friend and creates alliances with a different friend. And we have evidence that adolescents are telling that story in both of those ways and in close proximity and time. And so that's for me where my work would be would be going in the not too distant future. I'm a professor at Western Washington University in Bellingham, Washington. And my roots, I kind of always like to start by saying that my advisor is a personality psychologist steeped in the traditions of personality, but I was trained in a developmental program. So I kind of have um, both of those lenses on my work. And I've been mostly very interested in how adolescents and emerging adults develop a narrative identity. So less so on the adult. I mean, I have studied adults and psychological functioning and that kind of thing, but I'm much more interested in what are the processes of development. As Monisha said, very interested in how other people help us to develop our identities, so parents and friends. And I've gotten more interested in how they help us develop our identities, but also how they might constrain that development. So the expectations that other people have for our stories and, and how other people even tell stories about us that, that define us. And that has led me into thinking much more about larger cultural stories that also define us and both support our development and constrain our development. So when I mentioned earlier my interest, how narrative identity pushes us to think about the context that we're developing in, I'm really interested in how larger cultural stories frame what we're doing as we're as we're narrating ourselves. I'm also quite interested in how the stories we tell can both maintain particular cultural stories or disrupt them. And that act of maintenance of the status quo or disrupting of the status quo with our personal storytelling is where a lot of my research is focused right now. So I'm a professor of psychology at Olin College of Engineering, which is a small undergraduate college focused on engineering outside of Boston. I'm also the editor of Personality and Social Psychology Review, which is the top ranked journal in those disciplines. And we're focused on theory development. And I very much think about theory development as storytelling in our field. Mm -hmm. What are the yeah. sort of dominant storylines in our field? And how have those stories helped nurture and shape and constrain the field? And how might we think about other kinds of storylines? But then I also do a bunch of applied stuff. So I work really closely with a nonprofit organization called Health Story Collaborative, which is really focused on elevating personal stories in healthcare. And I'm a theater director and playwright where I'm really interested in the ways in which stories impact audiences, stories as a tool for making people encounter life experiences that are not their own. My research focuses mostly on narrative identity development in adulthood, so after the, the early formation process and its relationship with well-being. In the last five years or so, I've been especially focused on narrative identity among people with physical disabilities and the ways in which I sort of see this as a pair with Kate has done such great work on the ways in which culture constrains our identities. I'm also interested in the ways in which the body constrains our identities and especially cultural stories about the body. But all of those strands come together with this sort of centralized focus on narrative as a tool for supporting our well-being. In hindsight, I realized this was sort of an 
narrative identity question, or at least you all answered it in that way, talking about where you came from and how you're integrating these different parts of your life. So that's maybe a, a nice example of how narrative identity is a really a very ecological uh, thing as well that people naturally do. So um, yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, it's it's really nice to see how all of you look at different parts of this narrative identity and take different approaches that I think really complement each, each other. We already talked a little bit about the, the contribution that it makes and the sometimes unique parts of narrative identity in, in terms of how it approaches uh, these phenomena that we're looking at in people. Uh, but are there other ways or, or ways that you think in particular that this narrative identity approach is really contributing to the personality psychology field? I think, John, you pointed to the personological perspective. It's been a really productive approach in terms of bringing back that personological focus and that sort of very ideographic way of looking at people. And I think, you know, there's an, there's an old, there are, a lot, there are always lots of debates, right? But there's an old debate in personality psychology between nomothetic and ideographic approaches to studying the person. And with the, you know, the incredible success of the big five trait approaches, nomothetic approaches were sort of dominating our field for a long time. And I think that sort of emergence of narrative really was a, a good counter to that kind of dominance, uh, a good complement in some ways to, to what the, the big five and, and related trait approaches are showing about people. That really fits well also with what you were saying, John, earlier about the, how this is more focusing on the person and really adding something maybe in terms of focusing on that broader person rather than the more sort of different aspects of that person in terms of traits, that this is more holistic in a way, I guess. Of course, there are many, many important narrative identity findings, a lot of which you all also contributed to. But what would you say, or like in your opinion, is the most or are the most important things that were discovered or found in the narrative identity fields? <laughs> I think of I think of a, a paper that all three of us are authors on, but John and, and Kate were very prominently in, involved in, and Kate in particular. It's the the big three paper. And to me, that's probably one of the most important papers out there, in part because it takes on this beast of complexity, this kind of like complicated set of, of stories people have about their lives and tries to create some order about how we might look at those stories. And I think that is, to me, one of the supreme sorts of empirical findings was that there, there are regularities in spite of a wide range of empirical approaches and coding schemes and assorted other um, things people have employed methodologically that if you kind of put all that together, there is a sort of coherent set of dimensions along which people vary in the stories they tell. And that provides some traction for, for the field to move forward. So I think that's one really major contribution. Yeah, I think we all get the question frequently, what coding system should I use, <laughs> you know, for whatever, <laughs> someone who wants to do this research. And so the big three study gives an answer to that. Like if you're interested in autobiographical reasoning, here are the, the coding systems that pick that up the best, you know, or if you're interested in the structure of narrative, I think there are a lot of practical, useful things that, that came out of, of that paper. I'm trying I to think two more, you have two more, I'd nominate two others. Okay, go. For, for my big three findings. <laughs> I think another one is the um, fact that John demonstrated that there's incremental 
And Jen Lodi Smith, I think, was another key player in that paper. Yeah. Um, Kate, maybe you were in there too. I don't, I don't, but it's like a, I, I like these big collaborative ventures that the narrative world has done because I think they really, really move the field. Um, and that one was about the fact that the way people narrate um, predicts well being above and beyond traits, which I think is a really major, that's also a major contribution that sort of solidifies the fact that the stories people tell are meaningful. That, I mean, that paper was a review paper, so it was it was just doing the integrative work. But I actually think I was going to also talk about incremental validity, that there are, there are just a huge number of studies showing that narrative is often a better predictor um, or a stronger correlate of valued outcomes above and beyond other kinds of variables, including dispositional traits. That seems like sort of foundational to to the field. I want to nominate some of Kate's work. I think, Kate, your work with Moin Syed on the topic of master narratives, the stories that are often implicit, but which exert a ton of power in a given cultural context. I think that line of work is doing more than almost anything else I see in personality psychology to, like you said before, to overcome our narrow view of the individual as the unit of analysis and somehow separable from broader cultural processes. So I think that's absolutely huge for the field. Yes, those are all really important, I think. But something that's very, like, there's been some beautiful case studies that have been done that have been really Mm -hmm. foundational in terms of theory development. And I'm thinking of two. One, John, is, is your work on disability and the kind of sudden change in the body and how that might change the way people understand themselves or narrate themselves. Some beautiful case studies looking at people who've had onset of of disability or change, like in the case of Samantha. And then I'm also thinking about Ruth Ellen's paper of the woman who narrates the same story over the course of, I think it's 40 years, um, four four different times. And those three papers, there's two of John's and, and one of Ruth Ellen's, I think they really push us theoretically, which is what often what case studies do to think like what our theories not capturing, but also there's just some beautiful data in there that are really important in thinking about. So for example, in this woman who narrates the same story, she tells it in really different ways, really but different. Ruth Ellen's argument is that she, whatever her developmental concerns are at the moment, that's the way she's shaping and using the story. So the story is serving her purposes of understanding herself in the present moment. Those kinds of studies, I think, really are like gems in the field and not just for theory development, but also for data and thinking about how to understand people. Yeah, I love that idea out of out of oh. Ellen's work of stories as a tool that you can deploy um, to serve goals of the moment. And it makes me think in this, in this conversation, it's making me think back to the, the parent-child reminiscence work. Um, and so we've been talking because all of us look more at adolescence through adulthood and, and less at very early childhood. And, um, but there's all this early childhood work on the way that parents and particularly mothers can foster an elaborative reminiscing style in their children and that that reminiscing style is related to having earlier memories, you know, sort of more vivid memories. And so if you think about this as like stories as a tool that you can deploy for managing the needs of the moment or that work in the early development of autobiographical memory takes on a different importance, I think, you know, that mm-hmm. that mothers who are fostering that elaborative style are actually giving their their children a much bigger toolkit. That's worked by Elaine Reese and Robin Fivish and other colleagues. I was actually, that was going to be one of my nominations was Elaine's longitudinal study showing that early parent-child reminiscence predicts how adolescents begin to narrate their own life story. So there really is a long-term 
thread here of how we learn how to tell stories when we're quite young, three, four, or five years old, and then how we begin to tell our own stories more independently, yeah. not totally independently, but more independently in, in adolescence. I definitely parent differently as a result of encountering that research. Both Elaine's work on elaboration, which is focused exclusively on mothers, which a lot of the parenting research is, but also Robin Fivish's work on gender differences in the way parents sort of co-narrate their children's lives with them. That collection of studies has directly influenced the way that I parent our young children. So really a combination of more methodological papers and more conceptual and theoretical papers, as well as papers that have that immediate carryover to everyday life, which is, of course, what we want as researchers. I think you already mentioned this a little bit, but of course, this research is ever, ever going on. What are trends in the current narrative identity research field that you are very excited about? These can be trends that you're you're involved in, but also trends that you see in other research? I am excited about an idea that I've been working on with, with my colleague, Nick Westrate, which is that we often, I think in our field, we have thought about storytelling. We talked about this early storytelling is readily available and common and frequent, and, and it is. Um, but we also know that there are people in our communities who don't have access to the stories that they need to develop their own identities. So we need to know, for example, the stories of the group that we belong to, like what's our history? And that's often passed down in families. So intergenerational storytelling, family storytelling is really important for kids to locate themselves in a web of connection. And for people who have families that are quite different from them, that, those stories often aren't told. So Nick and I are working on intergenerational storytelling within the LGBTQ plus community, where youth are often raised in families who don't share their sexual or gender identities. And what we're seeing is that there is a lack of access between elders and youth. And we're trying to figure out how to bridge that gap and have access both for youth to hear stories they need to hear, but also for elders to have the chance to share their wisdom and their stories with youth. So that idea of story access is something that I'm really excited about and thinking about how can we create more story access when there isn't enough. I'll echo what I said before, which is I really do think a lot of the the vibrant work on master narratives is one of the most important current trends, mostly because it's not only helping us to better understand narrative identity, but it's also simultaneously doing work to expand this you know, sort of individualistic psychological notions of the person. And I think that's a really sort of revolutionary moment to be in, in the history of this field. And, and I see that work at the cutting edge. And then I will just call out one other strain that I see work by Miza Lind and others who are really working to bring the study of narrative identity to the study of personality pathology. Um, there's been a ton of work in personality psychology trying to connect models of dispositional traits to the study of personality pathology, which is probably the area of psychopathology that is most actively debated these days. But the scholarship of narrative identity is also incredibly relevant to understanding personality pathology. And I think there's some really exciting work happening there that has the potential to, again, not only reshape our understanding of normative narrative identity processes, but also really sort of tangibly shape 
the way clinical psychology conceives of challenges that people encounter and how to how to help them. I have relatively little to add here. I mean, I think both of those things, both the master narrative directions and the personality pathology directions and the intergenerational and and sort of access to cultural story issues that, that master narrative frameworks raise. I think those are really big and revolutionary and, and full of potential. And I think that the idea of stories as a, you know, there's, there's, I think, a debate in the world of personality pathology versus personality research about you know, are these qualitatively distinct things or are they dimensional things in which pathology is just an extreme place on a dimension? And I think stories have offer an alternative way to bridge kind of what is viewed as normal and what is viewed as pathological. So, yeah, so you all identified some important strengths of research, I think, that that, that are currently going on, but are also, of course, uh, something that has to develop over time. Are there challenges that you see in trying to get the field uh, into those directions? Or do you feel like it's it's going to be, it's just going to take time, but pretty smooth sailing? I will say that I think one of the biggest challenges in the master narrative work is the sort of, you know, and Kate will have much more insightful things to say about this, but for me, it's the paradoxical way in which master narrative structures are often so implicit and so taken for granted that they're like the background of the story people are telling. So figuring out how to excavate master narratives and, and sort of see them doing what they do is, is a methodologically challenging thing because it's often the thing that people don't say because we all know <laughs> that that's the case. And so I think that to me seems like a really, not an unmanageable challenge, but, but one that's going to push people to develop some ingenuity. I think that's related to another challenge that we have though, which is, I mean, as, as you both know, one of the potential solutions to that problem, which is a real problem, is to work with people who deviate from master narratives because they're more likely to see them and experience them and, and make vivid what those story constraints are. But in our field of personality, there's a real bias against publishing work with you know, marginalized groups, groups who are not commonly studied, more qualitative designs or smaller end designs. So doing that kind of work means working with different kinds of populations and using different kinds of methods that are not valued in personality psychology in the in the mainstream. And that's a real problem because there are certainly journals that are friendlier, but many of us have had the reviews that say, you know, you have to talk about the limitations of studying this very narrow group, you know, which is never talked about with all the white college students <laughs> that are studied or entered samples. So I think there's a methodological problem that Monish is bringing up, and then there's a structural problem within our discipline of what methods we value and what populations we value. That was sort of the direction that I was thinking too, and I'll take it even one step sort of more meta, which is I actually think a lot of the challenges that we face are not unique to the study of narrative identity or even to the field of personality or psychology, which is the all of the incentive structures in academia push people towards maximum and easily quantifiable productivity. And that often means quantity over quality. Um, it's a lot easier to get rewarded for publishing five small studies that make progress around the edges than to spend time on one or two big projects that really get at fundamental questions. And so again, that's not unique to our field, but I do think it is the major barrier to innovation and contribution broadly writ. 
It's actually really interesting because I think what you're describing is also sort of the master narrative that we have in academia at the level of academia, what you're saying, John, but also maybe in personality psychology that we we still somehow see that sort of the master narrative is that default population is the weird samples. That will also tie into the work that you're doing. Maybe if you find out how to change that master narrative, we can also apply it to our uh, to our own jobs. And I think what you mentioned, Kate, about getting this work published, uh, that that takes more effort. That also, I think, ties in with my next question, which is what can the broader field of personality psychology do to help us bring this narrative identity more into its own and, and really give it its chance to really do good work, except for tons of money. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> that'd be great. I mean, I do think methodological openness is important. I mean, it's important to to see these methods as meaningful and valuable and, and as really different than a lot of the other methods that we have. So the same kinds of, we might have different evaluations, you know, of, of what makes for good science, depending on the question that's posed and the method that's needed to answer that question. So we have very um, narrow definitions of what makes good science right now. So I think that's important. I also, I've just, it's striking me that another obstacle that is often raised is people say, I'd love to do this, but it's, it's too hard. It takes too much time. Well, learning a very complex statistical program takes a lot of time, right? Or doing a very complex statistical analysis takes a lot of time. So I think that that idea, we could start to diminish that a little bit. Like the, the hard and, and meaningful stuff takes a lot of time. And John mentioned some structural problems and what's rewarded, but I think we could encourage people to learn some some of these new techniques and see how they work in their in their programs of research, you know, whether that's trainings or you know, whatever it may be. But the good stuff does take time to do. I would love to see coupled with the sort of a methodological openness that Kate talked about and, and coupled with this incentive structure within academia, there's something about remembering why we're doing this work in the first place, which I think is, I think personality psychologists are drawn to understanding people. And so there's sort of a disciplinary humility in thinking about how to approach that big question. If we stay focused on the big question, then having as broad a toolbox as possible is most likely to help us actually pursue the questions that we're most interested in and seeing that there are pros and cons to every perspective. It's not that narrative identity has it all figured out and doesn't have any limitations, right? Of course, that's not true. It's that we want the full complement of tools for asking the kinds of questions that are really going to help us get at the phenomena that we're interested in. And anything as complex as personality is going to require quite a large toolbox. You asked about what personality psychology writ large could do, and I'll do a John and go even meta. I mean, I think we really do need to think about those incentive structures because we do incentivize work that can be churned out very quickly as a field and beyond as a field, like, you know, as a, as a sector, academia in general across disciplines incentivizes fast productivity and high quantity productivity and um, all of that disincentivizes uh, narrative work. And I think that's a that is in some ways a much bigger conversation that touches on like societal priorities and um and what how we understand what is valuable in pursuing that big question. Right now, we value like eight additional big five studies of MTurk samples over a single longitudinal narrative project um, because you will, as a young academic, you get more out of the first than the second. 
Yeah, so it seems to be like what we really need is a different way of thinking and the bag of money, but also really just a different way of approaching science. Yeah, I, I feel like we're, we are slowly changing that, that narrative that we have, but we, it takes too much time. Yeah, hopefully in the near future, we will get there. And I appreciate you having a, an episode focused on this topic. I mean, right, that is one way. If the primary audience for this podcast is personality psychologists, then hearing about alternative approaches is one way of changing the narrative. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for yeah all your really thoughtful answers and, and really getting into this topic with me and, and discussing your concerns, but also your hopes for the future. I really learned a lot. I really enjoyed it. And I hope... And I think our listeners will as well. So thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having us. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much for putting this together. Yeah, thank you. Thank you all.